This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. From COVID-19's resurgence in a second wave to economic recovery, from the We Charity scandal to a major trading partner facing a hugely significant election south of the border today. Those are just a few of the issues facing the federal liberal government. And joining us right now to talk about all of that is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Welcome to the show this morning. Thank you, Simi. Now let's start with what's happening in the United States, of course, Election Day. What kind of preparations has Canada been making for this? Well, I think Canada's always uh, aware and alert to what's going on with our uh, largest trading partner. We're uh, preparing for any uh, any different outcome, looking at uh, uh, various platforms and positioning and making sure that we're going to be able to stand up for uh, Canadian values and Canadian interests, regardless of what happens tonight. What is at the top of that list, though, when it comes to Canadian interests? Uh, trade, uh, continuing uh, you know, access to uh, the American market, to making sure we're defending Canadian jobs, uh, defending Canadian workers, uh, and uh, ensuring a, a smooth flow of goods uh, across the border, even in uh, a difficult uh, COVID period right now. And do you think that changes despite whoever wins tonight? I, I think uh, it, it's possible that there could be a different trajectory for COVID uh, in the United States if uh, if there's a different approach taken, but uh, uh, nothing's going to happen uh, quickly, nothing's going to happen overnight, and uh, we need to uh, uh, continue to be really, uh, really careful and put uh, Canadian safety at the top of all our decisions uh, when it comes to the border. Yeah, let's talk about COVID-19 right now. Are you worried where we are when you see the number of cases this second wave right across the country? Uh, yeah, I'm worried. I think uh, uh, people are rightly uh, getting tired of having to make sacrifices, of not seeing friends, of not seeing family. Uh, it's been a long time, and it's going to continue to be uh, be uh, be many more months before we get to uh, to a vaccine. So uh, you know, it, it, it people are tired, uh, but we know that. On top of the public health measures, the, uh, the restrictions that uh, governments can bring in, um, people have to continue to make smart choices. And it's, it's not easy, uh, but uh, we need to hang in there for a, a number more months as we get through this winter so that uh, we keep, uh, keep people safe, keep our loved ones safe, and, uh, and we get to the other side without too much damage. Yeah, but what does that mean for the financial supports from the government? Because these were not programs that were designed to go on you know, indefinitely. Uh, actually, they are programs designed to go on at least till next summer because we've committed to Canadians that we will be there to support them, whatever it takes, however long it takes to get through COVID-19. And that's, that's a guarantee we can make because Canada went into this situation with a better economic uh, balance sheet than a fiscal balance sheet than, uh, than many of our peer countries. Uh, and we also know that supporting people, supporting small businesses, supporting people to hold on through this pandemic is the best way to have our economy come roaring back uh, to get past this, you know, COVID recession as quickly as possible is not to lose too many things in our communities, in our neighborhoods. And that's way where 
controlling the spread of the virus and supporting people needs to be our top priority. We spoke to Dr. Tam on Friday and she talked about her belief that economic recovery should also be used to impact inequality in Canada. I mean, is this the time to make changes to the social programs in this country? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, a time of crisis is always an opportunity to look at what's working and what's not working. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, inequality, a lot of gaps in our social safety net for many years, uh, but COVID has really exposed them. Uh, The most vulnerable are elderly, marginalized people, people struggling with addictions. Uh, They are extra uh, vulnerable to COVID-19. I think we have to recognize that even in, in normal times, um, we, we need to do a better job of supporting people. And COVID gives us the, uh, the, the, the motivation, the excuse, the opportunity uh, to do more for them. But what's at the top of that list? And what do you envision uh, as doing? Uh, housing uh, is one of the very tops of our lists, uh, obviously moving forward with the rapid housing initiative as we have uh, working closely with municipalities, provinces on creating uh, better uh, better supports for immediate housing for the most vulnerable, uh, working on housing affordability for, uh, for middle class families. These are things uh, that are, you know, housing is not just a problem, it's also a solution. Uh, that's where we're moving forward on, uh, on investing in housing. But general inequality as well, whether it's uh, uh, anti-black racism or anti-indigenous racism, uh, we need to be looking at our systems from policing to our justice system to, uh, uh, to our, 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 our social systems uh, to give people proper support. Metro Vancouver has been hit particularly hard with COVID-19 when it comes to homelessness. Uh, City of Vancouver in particular desperately wants help from the federal government to help fix this problem. What can you do for them? Well, recently announced uh, a billion-dollar rapid housing initiative to create 3,000 affordable homes across the country. Uh, in Vancouver, that's uh, an extra $51 million to support, ad- uh, to support additional uh, affordable housing. Uh, we're moving quickly on modular housing. We're moving quickly uh, on purchasing, helping the city purchase properties that can be converted uh, into shelters for, uh, for uh, the homeless. Um, these are things that we know we are doing right now, but there's always more to do, and we're looking forward to continuing to work uh, in partnership. Before we let you go, I also have to ask you, you know, we, we came close to an election, it sounds like, a couple of weeks ago, and that was just too close for so many Canadians over issues that I think a lot of people feel should be easily dealt with in Ottawa. Do you really think Canadians want to go to the polls right now? How did it get no, that close? I, 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 I don't. I don't think so at all. But we're in a minority government right now, which me, a minority parliament, which means we can only govern uh, with the support and confidence of opposition parties. Uh, we want to focus on uh, dealing with COVID-19. I don't think there's any other priority right now. And opposition parties just have to decide whether or not they want parliament to work for Canadians uh, or whether they want to go into an election and uh, and change governments. Uh, that's not our choice to make. That's their choice to make. We're going to keep focusing on COVID and hopefully the opposition parties will uh, will continue to want to make Parliament work. Are you willing to compromise, though, to make sure we don't have to go to the polls? Oh, we, we have been, but uh, I'm not going to compromise on the safety of Canadians. I'm not going to compromise on making sure that we're helping people the way we have from the very beginning. We've seen uh, Conservatives saying things like, uh, we're spending too much money on Canadians. We should have helped businesses uh, before we helped uh, individuals. We disagree with that, and we're going to stay true to uh, the priority, which is making sure Canadians Canadians get all the help they need as long as they need. We made the commitment to have Canadians back, and uh, I'm not compromising on that. Prime Minister Trudeau, thank you very much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure, Simi. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi.
Let's find out how it's going down there. Joining us now is our Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. Good morning, Jackson. Good morning, Simi. So polls are now open. What's going on today with the candidates? Yeah, so uh, it is a final push into Pennsylvania for Joe Biden today. He's making the symbolic trip home to his birthplace of Scranton. There's a quick stop in Philadelphia, and then he's heading back home to his current home in Wilmington, Delaware, where he'll watch the results come in tonight and uh, likely address the nation if he has a clear sense of where the sort of electoral college math is ending up tonight. For President Trump, uh, only one event on the schedule. It's a visit to his campaign headquarters in Virginia, and then he's spending the day and the night at the White House He's got 400 invited guests who are going to join him there to watch the results roll in. We don't know if he will uh, address the nation tonight or not. Again, I think it depends on how the results go. And the reason he's sort of taking this unusual step of watching this from inside the White House is because uh, his plans to hold a watch party at the Trump Hotel were blocked by Washington, D.C., which has big restrictions on crowd gatherings because of the pandemic. The White House is federal property. He controls it so he can do what he wants there. Let's talk about that threat of violence, though, because one of the starkest pictures I think I've seen over the last couple of days is all these cities boarding up their downtown areas. Yeah, here in Washington, you name a city, it's uh, the same thing is happening. Everybody is boarding up. And I think it's because there's so much uncertainty about what happens tonight. What happens if we're in sort of an undefined period where there's no clear winner or there's a contested result or somebody declares victory before the result is fully known? Uh, Lots of potential for violence there. They've sort of fortified the White House as well. They've put up a non-scalable fence that spans around it for several blocks. uh, And that uh, was last in place uh, during the summer of protests here. And then you've got uh, National Guard uh, uh, who are on standby in states across the country in case of potential violence. Uh, we also know that the Bureau of Prisons, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, is sending its riot control squads here to Washington. They were last deployed again during the summer of protest as those sort of ununiformed, mysterious agents outside the White House. So uh, lots of questions about what happens here tonight and how this goes. Uh, you know, I think generally speaking, there's a, a sense of sadness that this is what it is come to mm-hmm. ahead of an election in a, in a country that touts itself as one of the world's greatest democracies. Oh, absolutely. Now, what about the results, though, Jackson? Because there's been lots of, you know, discussion back and forth about how, when will we know the results? Will it be tonight? Yeah, I think we will get a sense of that as the night unfolds. And sorry for the big sigh there. I think it depends on, you know, states like Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. If they're trending toward Joe Biden, and these are states that will deliver early results tonight, if they go to Joe Biden, the, the night is probably going to be over fairly soon, and we could have a winner declared, uh, you know, in the early morning hours. If those states stick with President Trump, as they did back in 2016, then we're in for a much longer process here, where it's going to come down to Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. And those are the states that legally have not been allowed to pre-count the millions of mail-in ballots that they've already received. So Pennsylvania has three million mail-in ballots that they've got to sort through. They can't start opening those envelopes until this morning. It's going to take a while to count that. And so if we're in a close election, you know, we could be here on Friday and still not know who the winner is if we're waiting on those states. There's a lot of activity, though, from the candidates. I noticed that the president yesterday, he, he just kept going to rally after rally and state after state. Are there certain states then? Does that show that they're worried? Yeah, I mean, I think the focus on Pennsylvania tells you it is the linchpin state in all of this uh, that's, you know, going to be very decisive. There's the sort of uh, blue wall that collapsed for the Democrats in 2016, the Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that they need to hold up this time. They don't want that to collapse again. Uh, That's part of the strategy against Trump. And then for Trump, you know, he's in a make or break scenario here where he's playing defense in states that he won 
uh, by a huge margin the last time around, like Florida. Uh, the fact that Texas is in toss-up territory is not great yeah. for President Trump. That is as reliably Republican as states could get. So, uh, yeah, you know, the big states, if you're if you're doing the, the checkerboard tonight, watch Florida, watch North Carolina, watch Pennsylvania, even though we won't know Pennsylvania tonight. That's so fascinating, though, that now Pennsylvania is a linchpin, because in previous elections, it's been like, oh, Florida's the linchpin, or Ohio is the linchpin. How did Pennsylvania end up there? You know, it's the, the sort of flexible politics of voters there where they were reliably Democrat for a long time. And then a lot of them uh, decided to move to President Trump in 2016, whether it's because they were frustrated with uh, traditional politics or whether because they wanted to, to give Trump a try. Uh, now we're in the situation where Joe Biden, who is a son of Scranton, as he likes to say, has that crossover working class appeal is trying to scoop up those voters and bring them back into the fold. And uh, so, yeah, it is this really, really sort of microcosm of how Trumpism has rolled out across the U.S. And Reggie, how are you? Reggie, we always talk to Reggie. Sorry, Jackson. Uh, Jackson, <laughs> how are you feeling about this? You've been doing this for two years solid now following this American election. Yeah, I think the, the uncertainty is the incredible part here. And I think part of that is, you know, all of us, and I say that not just as a journalist, but I think as somebody who is living in the U.S., everyone is much more cautious about predictions and jumping to conclusions after the way 2016 unfolded. And you know, where there's a temptation to be asked yeah. for predictions or to make predictions. I'm not going to do that. I can tell you the odds suggest that things could go better for Joe Biden tonight. But odds are odds for a reason. And <laughs> yes. there's always a chance that they could go the other way. Right. And, you know, the, the sort of more authoritative predictions say Joe Biden's got 90 percent odds. That means there's a one in 10 chance that Donald Trump could still win this. And we know that that is very much a possibility tonight. Well, we won't ask then. How about that? Jackson, thank you so much. <laughs> Fair deal. <laughs> Thanks okay. a lot. That's Jackson Prosco, our Global News Washington Bureau Chief, talking about Election Day. The polls are now open in the states. You can already see that there are lineups in places, and there have been lineups for like a week now with advanced voting as well. It's. Um, I, I have a feeling so many people are going to be listening and watching to election coverage. We will also have that right here on CQ. KNW, so you can listen in here, you can watch on Global. There is a lot to talk about. So much of it will impact Canada as well, right? Uh, so much has changed in the relationship with the United States in the last four years during the Trump presidency. Remember how the big issue four years ago was also, will the president, will President Trump make his first visit to Canada, as so many other previous presidents have done, as a sign of, you know, respect in that relationship? And that didn't happen. And so a lot, the balance has kind of really shifted. But as we heard from the prime minister just a few minutes ago here on the show, he said they're will, ready and willing to work with whoever gets elected. But obviously, they are making those preparations now at the federal government level. This is Mornings with Simi. They are programs designed to go on at least till next summer because we've committed to Canadians that we will be there to support them, whatever it takes, however long it takes to get through COVID-19. Now, that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He was speaking with us about half an hour ago. Now, a lot of business owners would be happy to hear that. And they might actually like this new legislation that is coming from the federal government that is supposed to try to help them out with rent and wage subsidies. So let's get some analysis on that. Joining us now is Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thanks for being back with us. Good morning. Now, I know that previously the wage subsidy, you know, program was one thing. The rent subsidy program was very problematic. What do you think about this new legislation? 
You know, the, there is a significant improvement to both the wage and rent subsidy as we go forward over the fall. Um, and as you noted, especially for the rent subsidy, as the previous approach the federal government was using, it's a complete disaster. Uh, most small firms that were even eligible for the subsidy, which was supposed to give them a 75% reduction in the rent, most of them got zero because their landlord wouldn't participate and therefore the program was deeply flawed. The new plan will uh, will be retroactive to October uh, and will provide a subsidy commensurate with the amount of their, their revenue loss. So if you've had a small loss in your revenue, you get a small subsidy. If you've got a large one, you could get up to 90% of your rent covered by this new plan, uh, especially if you are in one of those business categories that is, the, you know, that is now affected by some new shutdowns, as is happening in B.C., Ontario, Quebec, and, and now Manitoba. So there, there's a lot to like in the new approach, but it's mm-hmm. not going to fix everything. Uh, one of the biggest gaps is that the government is not providing any retroactive support for the months that you were shut down in the spring if you weren't able to get the previous subsidy program at all. And, and that, that's, that's one of the big worries. A lot of businesses are struggling because they have back rent bills for months and months of, of spring closures that they haven't gone away and they're dragging them down. So you're saying those deferral payments are the ones that are going to cause trouble? They are, and, and most of those deferrals have ended, so businesses are now expected to pay their, their rent for, for previous months. And the previous subsidy was supposed to cover all the way from April through September. Most businesses, even those with giant losses, got no money, uh, and that's, you know, so they've got 50, 100 grand in, in debt, and their current sales are still often uh, not enough to pay their current bills, let alone dig them out of the hole they've created from the first phase of uh, of the pandemic. So is this going to, though, help businesses at least keep their doors open perhaps into next year? It will. Now, it's, it's, it, it really depends on how quickly we can get this money out to businesses. And, and of course, the program is still in the design stage. Uh, the legislation hasn't even passed, <laughs> and it's supposed to cover, we've missed now October rent. Yeah. Uh, it's supposed to have covered November rent. Those bills are now due. I'm giving it 50-50 as to whether the program will be in place for December rent. And just from a cash flow perspective, many businesses are worried. But look, it removes the landlord from the equation altogether, so the subsidy goes direct to the tenant, which is good news. It provides relief all the way out till June 2020, which uh, 2021, so that's really good news. And there are now, uh, there's now subsidy for any business with any degree of revenue loss, not just those most affected that's right. good news, too. So I, I do think that there's a lot of positives in the design that the federal government has proposed, but it's just not coming fast enough. Right. So you would just like to see a greater sense of urgency to get this going? Absolutely. And we're my organization, CFIB, right now, I think one of my calls later today is with the Canada Revenue Agency to try to sort out some of the details so we can at least get the systems up and running uh, such that when the legislation passes, then well, hopefully businesses will be able to right. apply the wage subsidy has also been extended and, and, and uh, you know, some positive changes there. We haven't heard, though, any news about the SIBA loan program. The government did promise, and I think you and I spoke about this, mm-hmm. an expansion of that program to $60,000 with another 10000 forgivable. But there's no word on when that's going to kick in and when businesses are going to be able to apply. So, so you know, look, it's a mixed bag in the announcements just yesterday. Are, are businesses worried, Dan, about the second wave of COVID-19? Oh my gosh, yes. It's, it's deeply troubling what's happening right now. 
our data shows that across Canada right now, 50%, 51% of businesses are saying that their sales are declining again as a result of fears related to the second wave or uh, closure r- rules from provincial governments related to the second wave. And, and even more troubling than that, 37% of businesses across Canada have told us that they are losing money every day they are open. Can you imagine? This late stage, seven yeah. months into the pandemic, almost 40% of Canada's small business community, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of businesses, losing money every single day. And the question is, how many more days can you do that before you have to say, I'm throwing good money after bad, and I'm going to have to close my door, especially if you're not seeing light at the end of the tunnel, uh, that you're cust- okay, if I can just get through this next couple of weeks, maybe right. things will get better. That's not what most business owners are facing right now. Dan, is there a particular sector that has greater concerns, do you think? Yeah, well, obviously the uh, the sectors that have been hardest hit through the whole pandemic, including right now, are the uh, you know hospitality that, of course, has been extensively discussed. So that's restaurants and bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also arts and recreation businesses. They are really struggling. Uh, beyond that, uh, the service business more broadly. You know, anything that requires people to be present together, those businesses are really struggling, and it's even affecting many retailers. Uh, as as they see their sales decline because customers are now shifting once again their business to Amazon and and big box stores when they get their groceries rather than going out to the the small little shops in their neighborhoods. Right, so they're scared again. This is just it. And and look, BC, the public health officials in BC, I think, have done a bit better job than in, in other parts of the country in terms of trying to provide some reason. I've taken positive messages from some of Bonnie Henry's comments that, you know, dining in a restaurant may be a safer option than if you're getting together with people in your own private home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there haven't been as many shutdowns in B.C., so that's that's good news. But, gosh, the country is bleeding, and our business community from coast to coast is deeply struggling. It's one of the reasons why we're promoting and trying to encourage Canadians to, to shop local through our Small Business Everyday campaign to, to, to try to get the message out. You want these businesses in your backyard, you've got to yeah. support them, especially right now. We will help out with that. Dan, thank you. Anytime. Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And you, you really can't remind people enough about that, that he was just mentioning there, that here we've got the holiday season approaching. And if you are going to be buying things for Christmas this year, try to buy as local as you possibly, possibly can out there and help out some local businesses this year. I know the Amazons of the world are tempting those big box stores because yes, maybe you might save a dollar or two, but boy, those local businesses could really, really use your help right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of people are going to be tuning in to watch U.S. election coverage tonight. Let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer about that. Nikki, is this going to be you? Are you going to be one of these people? Oh, absolutely. I am going to watch the election with my parents. We've already decided we're going to order pizza. Aww. We're going to drink a bottle of wine. And <laughs> or more than once. <laughs> maybe more than one. And we are going to watch election coverage tonight for as long as we can possibly bear it. It's like How a hot you? movie night. It's like a hot yeah. movie night, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. What about you? I'm always fascinated by counter-programming. So I always love to see what some channel that's going to be like, oh, well, we're not doing election coverage so let's see what we can put on i love because sometimes they're just gems that are on tv on another channel but they bring out the big guns yeah right so you i'm i love to see what else is going on i will of course 
check on the results. I'm just not sure I can make myself sit there for hours and watch the all of them come rolling in. Yeah, it's uh, well, it'll, like we said, it's going to require more than one bottle of wine. I, think, to <laughs> I don't drink, so that's there. my problem, right? So. Oh yeah, then you certainly can't watch the. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Certainly can't watch the election tonight. <laughs> you know, it was so interesting though because to kick off this show, you had Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking on this program, and very fitting because you know we here we have the biggest event happening in the whole world today, just south of our border, and it was really interesting to hear the questions that you asked to the Prime Minister. Listen, to this. Canada is always uh, aware and alert to what's going on with our uh, largest trading partner. We're uh, preparing for any uh, any different outcome, looking at uh, uh, various platforms and positioning and making sure that we're going to be able to stand up for uh, Canadian values and Canadian interests, regardless of what happens tonight. What is at the top of that list, though, when it comes to Canadian interests? Uh, trade, uh, continuing uh, you know, access to uh, the American market, to making sure we're defending Canadian jobs, uh, defending Canadian workers, uh, and uh, ensuring a, a smooth flow of goods uh, across the border, even in uh, a difficult uh, COVID period right now. And do you think that changes despite whoever wins tonight? I, I think uh, it, it's possible that there could be a different trajectory for COVID uh, in the United States if uh, if there's a different approach taken. But uh, uh, nothing's going to happen uh, quickly. Nothing's going to happen overnight. And uh, we need to uh, uh, continue to be really, uh, really careful and put uh, Canadian safety at the top of all our decisions uh, when it comes to the border. He was so careful, right? But like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of planning going on at that federal government level, uh, depending on who is going to win tonight. Absolutely, there is. And what the reaction will be in the United States in such a variety of ways. There's really I think, big, three big stories here that are going to be unfolding over the next 24 to 48 hours that we should all be watching for. And one of those is, of course, the election results. Two is going to be all the lawsuits that could include or exclude ballots that you're seeing the political parties in the states filing currently, and then the civil unrest and problems at the polling stations. And I know that Canadian officials have been a bit concerned about if that spills into Canada. That has been a conversation that's been had behind closed doors and what will be done in those circumstances. Of course, we're seeing a huge reaction in the United States to that possibility with businesses boarding up in advance of the election results tonight, authorities bracing for that unrest yeah. as well. And I, I want to share with you this report from CBS reporter Jeff Pegues. Really interesting stuff here. Today in New York City, the nation's largest police department is putting businesses on alert as stores there and around the country board up as a precaution. In Houston, vandals targeted the county's Democratic Party headquarters, spray painting the windows with the words, elections no, revolution yes. In Beverly Hills over the weekend, protesters and counter-protesters treated fists. The city's chief is warned about election-motivated violence. Today, he told us his officers are working 12-hour shifts with no days off. Well, uh, basically, we uh, are doing is preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. In recent weeks, the FBI has arrested militia members allegedly planning attacks. And starting tomorrow, officials will be monitoring events across the country from a command center at FBI headquarters. Washington, D.C. is likely to get extra attention. Are you anticipating violence? City Homeland Security officials are bracing for half a dozen protests over the next several days. We certainly want to make sure that those uh, protests are peaceful and that violence or any types of violence uh, will not be tolerated here in the district. 
It is just unreal this, what we've seen happening down in the States. It's just not something, Nikki, that we ever thought we'd really see. I never thought I would see what we're seeing in the United States right now happening there. This is something that you see in other countries around the world that have decades-long records of, of political unrest, not in the United States. And that's what's going to make the election so interesting to watch tonight. Yeah. It's so unprecedented. This is a historical event we're living through. It certainly is. Hopefully everything goes well. Nikki, thank you. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This is Mornings with Simi. So this morning, we had Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the show bright and early. One of the things that we talked about is I asked him, what are Canada's top priorities when it comes to the U.S. election? Trade, uh, continuing uh, you know, access to uh, the American market, to making sure we're defending Canadian jobs, uh, defending Canadian workers, and uh, ensuring a, a smooth flow of goods uh, across the border, even in a difficult uh, COVID period right now. All right, let's talk about some of those trade issues. Joining us is Kristen Hopewell, the Canada Research Chair in Global Policy and an Associate Professor at UBC. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for having me. Now, would you say that the relationship with the United States, especially when it comes to trade, has that changed in the last four years? Absolutely. Um, the relationship has become much more difficult. Uh, I, I think the key issue is that Trump has really wrecked havoc on the global trading system, and that's had implications for Canada and for countries all over the world. Um, you know, before Trump, the U.S. had really spent the past 70 years investing in creating an open global trading system that was based on international cooperation and the rule of law. But Trump has waged a, a prolonged assault on that system. Um, we've seen him arbitrarily impose tariffs on all of the U.S.'s major trading partners. Um, he's launched major trade wars. He's um, blatantly and repeatedly violated the rules of the World Trade Organization. He's threatened to withdraw from the WTO and also thrown its system of, uh, for resolving trade disputes among states into jeopardy by blocking appointments to the WTO's appellate body, um, which is a, an appeals court that basically functions as a supreme court for global trade, and he's, he's left that unable to function. And, of course, he's also threatened to withdraw from uh, free trade agreements like NAFTA, um, forcing countries like Canada to renegotiate those agreements and make new additional concessions to the U.S., so Trump has, has definitely been a, a very destructive, dangerous force in the trading system. Um, we've seen him weaponize trade, essentially uh, using trade as a tool of economic coercion and a, a way of bullying other states to get what the U.S. wants. So, uh, you know, under Trump, the, the U.S. has really been acting like something of a, a rogue state in international trade, and that's something that's been, been very negative for Canada and Right. Many other countries, yeah. But even on the Democratic side, I've been reading about this as well, that like Canada can't assume that if America votes, you know, for a Democratic president this time around, that so much is going to change in that trading relationship. Um, I think we can see expect to see some pretty big changes under Biden. I think um, we can expect to see a sea change in uh, the U.S. approach to trade and to trade trade policy. Um, Biden has indicated that he intends to recommit the U.S. 
to international cooperation, to international organizations like the WTO, and to abiding by the rule of law. And he's also signaled that he's very keen to try to rebuild the U.S.'s traditional alliances, including with with countries like Canada. So I think we can expect to see um, a much less um, combative approach to trade from, from a Biden presidency and much more emphasis on fostering cooperation and working together with countries like Canada um, as these countries try to rebuild their their economies and recover from COVID and uh, increase their competitiveness going forward. So uh, under a Biden presidency, I think we would see a a big shift in policy. Right. But there's still protectionist measures, though, on the Democratic side of things as well. It's not just going to be open and clear sailing for Canada. Potentially, yeah. I mean, one of the areas where Biden has signaled um, he, he would intend to pursue more protectionist policies is with Buy America policies and government procurement. Um, so definitely um, there has been a shift, a, a long-term shift, I think, in U.S. approach to trade. So it won't be um, a complete embrace of, of free trade, but I think Biden is much more favorably predisposed to trade. Um, and again, to abiding by the rule of law, which is so critical for Canada in ensuring stable trading relations with the U.S. Um, than what we've seen under Trump. Okay, then. So are there certain areas, do you think, of that trading relationship with Canada that Canada needs to emphasize or get fixed right away? I know that like steel and aluminum, those have been big issues. Yeah, definitely. Um, So Trump right now is threatening to reimpose tariffs on imports of aluminum from Canada. So that's a big issue. Um, Biden has signaled that he's fundamentally opposed to those tariffs. Um, These are tariffs that... um, on steel and aluminum that Trump imposed on basically all of the U.S.'s big trading partners, um, supposedly on the grounds of national security, which many have found, you know, very dubious rationale for the tariffs, given that countries like Canada are close security allies of the U.S. So Biden has signaled he fundamentally opposes those tariffs, and he's likely to abolish them. So that's something that's quite important for Canada. Um, And similarly, there are other issues like softwood lumber and the Trans-Pacific Partnership that also um, Biden has signaled uh, more favorable positions for Canada as well. Right. But those have been ongoing. When you think about softwood lumber, we haven't been able to really definitively fix that problem between the two countries for decades. (laughs) It's true. Softwood lumber has been a a longstanding source of dispute between Canada and the U.S., but um, recently, Canada won a major victory um, in a, a case of the WTO uh, against the U.S. on softwood lumber. The, the WTO ruled that um, tariffs that the U.S. had imposed on uh, Canadian softwood lumber were illegal. But that ruling was actually blocked by the U.S. Um, because, as I said, the U.S. has been blocking the appointment of judges to the appeals court of the WTO. It's been able to, to block that ruling from um, being enforced. So Canada obviously wants to see that ruling in force. This is an important victory. Um, and that's more likely to happen under Biden. It's more likely that Biden would resume uh, allowing judges to be appointed to the appellate body, which would mean um, Canada would be more likely to be able to get a final ruling in the Southwood case and get that ruling enforced, which would mean the U.S. would be forced to remove the tariffs that it's imposed on Canadian Southwood lumber, or Canada right. would be granted the legal right to retaliate. So although the the dispute has been longstanding, this has been a really important case, and this is an area where Canada would really like to see this WTO ruling come into force. Kristen, do you think that over the last four years then, when we've seen what's happened in the United States, has Canada looked elsewhere? Like we used to, I'm sure, just assume that that was our biggest and most reliable trading partner. Can we just assume that anymore? I think that's that's something that's um, really been um, thrown into doubt under Trump, as we've seen the danger of being so heavily reliant on on one country for such a large portion of our exports. Um, You know, about three-quarters of our exports go to the U.S., 
And um, in the past, that relationship was relatively stable. There were always occasional trade disputes or trade irritants in the relationship. But on balance, we could count on, on free and open access to that market. And that's something that, um, you know, is no longer certain in the same way it was in the past. So Canada has certainly been looking to expand its export markets to diversify and um, sell more to other countries. But um, that's not something that it's easy to do. I mean, we're naturally, because of our geographic proximity to the U.S., um, our economies are very heavily integrated. It's um, an easy place for Canada to export to for sort of natural market reasons. And it's much more difficult to try to reorient our exports right. elsewhere. And as we've seen, um, you know, one of our, our growing export markets has been China, and that's also presented other potential sources of instability and challenge as well for Canada. It's always something. Kristen, thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's Kristen Hopewell, Canada Research Chair in Global Policy and Associate Professor at UBC. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk now about a local story that is generating a lot of interest. It has to do with Vancouver City Council and the Climate Emergency Action Plan that has been much discussed. Well, now an open letter has been signed by more than two dozen Vancouver faith leaders and members of the clergy urging council to adopt that plan, which will be presented for a vote today. One of those people who signed is Rabbi Dan Moskovitz, who joins us now to talk more about this. He's the senior rabbi at Temple Shalom. Uh, Rabbi Dan, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. It's a pleasure. Why did you feel it was important to sign this? Well, I think that all faith traditions, and I know certainly within Judaism, see our responsibility as being inheritors and therefore guardians of the natural world. It's a whatever you understand to be your God concept, it was here before we all got here, and therefore we become its caretakers. And uh, I think often about a parable about uh, farmers arguing over a land, and they go to their elder, they go to, in my store version, they go to the rabbi, and the, the rabbi puts her ear to the ground and listens to the earth and says, you know, it's saying actually that you belong to it. it, it it's the other way around. And so we, we are responsible for this place. We have to be good caregivers of it, and I think that that is a moral and, in my sense, a spiritual responsibility. Are there aspects of the plan that you like that you think, yes, this, these are, this is more of what we should be doing? Well, I've been involved in this process since before the pandemic. The city really reached out to faith leaders and to other community leaders of different cohorts to engage us in the process. It's a detailed plan. You know, there's six big moves. There's almost 50 recommendations. It's pages and pages long. And, and you know, each of those taken by themselves is, uh, is a significant step. And taken together, I think that it will really make significant change. And, and of course, there's cost involved. But... Um, the cost of not doing something, uh, I think, as we've seen throughout, uh, you know, throughout other you know, issues and, and certainly at the, throughout the climate crisis is, is even more significant and more severe. So I'm, I'm hoping that citizens will participate in the fine-tuning of this plan. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm concerned, of course, about you know, its equity for others, but the plan addresses that at the very beginning and throughout to make sure that it's done in a way that, uh, that improves our lives and improves the life of our planet and, and all that inhabit it. A lot of the attention for this plan, though, has focused on the costs, as you said there, Um, Mm -hmm. the cost of the mobility pricing, how much that's going to cost people. And then, you know, people start to get very, very concerned. Do you worry that the message might get lost with all that? Yeah, and that's why I brought it up, you know, just just in my initial remark, because, of course, we look at our pocketbook and that's a direct impact. But really, the direct impact is what's happening all around us in our in our environment, and there are costs that we're already inheriting. 
that we're already you know experiencing for for not being more environmentally conscious or being able to be uh, more proactive in our address to uh, to the environment. So, yeah, I do worry about it, but but at the same time, you know, I, I think about how. Um, you know, some of the things that we need to do in society, they're only motivated when they hit us in the pocketbook because we're unable to see over the horizon about how this really will impact our quality of life, our health, um, you know, our emotional safety, our physical safety, our well-being. I mean, look at the global pandemic, right? Look at COVID. Had we invested in the infrastructure to prepare ourselves better to respond to that pandemic, then the economic cost of that might have and probably would have been significantly less Right. If we were in a position where we, you know, we're planning for this. Is it realistic to think, though, that I think part of the plan says, what, 80% of people should make their trips, 90% of their trips by walking to mm-hmm. do all, to do a lot of their daily activities? Now, I think people will go, yeah, that's a nice idea, but how do we make that happen? Well, you know, I mean, I think about how... Um, traffic in the city changed during the beginning of the of the you know the, the isolation period of the beginning of the pandemic, and now we, as we see it now with kids back in school, there is so much traffic now. I don't want to drive downtown. I don't want to drive across town. Um, but prior to that, it was uh, so easy to walk places. We got much more neighborly, uh, neighborhoody, uh, and so I do think that that there can be uh, that kind of social. Um, values-based impact that, that can happen, and people will make choices that are best for them, and, and it also happens to be best for the planet. Um, so, yes, I mean, when gas was whatever it was, you know, almost $3 a liter a, a while back, we also made choices about not taking that extra trip. So we need to learn to do this in, in new ways, but human beings can, can adjust. We look, we're all wearing masks now. We weren't doing that eight, nine months ago. We've right. learned to make changes. But you know, you know this, of course, that we only do things when we're absolutely forced to do things. Yeah. That's human nature. It is. It's not the religious life, though. The religious life, the spiritual life, says look over the horizon. Do what is, it, what is good for you, what is good for the planet, what is good for your soul. And um, I think that we often will also do that for ourselves. We will, you know, yes, some people only go to the gym after they've suffered some, you know, you know a heart attack or some kind of terrible right. injury. But the, 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 the wise person sees that the heart attack is coming and goes to the gym first. The wise person sees that this is good for my soul and I need to put down my cell phone or I need to be home for dinner with my family because that is, is good for my soul. We need to care for this planet and, and because it's good for our soul, it's good for the soul of the planet. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz, I get that. And that's all, I think, ideally what people would be doing. But I think, doesn't fear drive us sometimes, right? We're fear of change, where we just want everything to stay the same? Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, and there's, a, there's a story in our tradition about Noah and the ark. It's a story in many traditions. And, and one of the teachings is, is that Noah would not have gotten on the ark if the water had not reached his ankles. And so if you need, if you need fear, just, just look at the climate models. I mean, if that's your motivator, and, it, and it's not necessarily even about our lived experience, but what we are giving to our children, um, I think there's plenty to be fearful of out there, and we you know, are denying ourselves if we don't look at that as a motivator uh, to make these systemic and, and necessary changes. So what message then do you have for people who, when they originally heard about this you know, climate emergency action plan, just thought, you know, if it's going to cost me money, forget it? You know, I, you know I, I think that everything has, um, we, we have to look at everything as, as, as having cost. What the cost of not doing something, the, the cost of letting, kicking this down the road, of not addressing climate change is going to be far greater. You know, the, there's a leak in, your, in the roof of your home. 
what's the cost of not addressing that leak? We all know that. We all know that we need to fix the leak or then, you know, we're flooded and there's mold and all of those things. There's a leak in the roof of our planet. Um, it's greenhouse gases and we need to reduce that and, and address it or it's going to get far, far worse and we're not going to be able to pay that bill and our children aren't going to be able to pay that bill and we're going to suffer the consequences. Rabbi Moskowitz, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Be well. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to be able to stand up for Canadian values and Canadian interests, regardless of what happens tonight. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the show with us earlier this morning. All eyes, including the Prime Minister's, are on what is unfolding in the United States today with voting day. Joining us now for more on that is Leonard Steinhorn, CBS News political analyst. Good morning, Leonard. Thanks for being back with us. Well, happy to be here. Thanks. I know you're also going to be watching this closely tonight. So how do you think is this going to unfold? Is this like a typical election night? Well, it depends what typical is. I mean, when you look back in history, some elections have gone to the next day or afterward. Um, You had the year 2000, which went on for weeks. Um, So if it is a big victory on one side or the other, and that's clear, um, we'll know sooner than later. For example, If Joe Biden can win any one of Florida, Georgia, Arizona, or North Carolina, and we'll hear about that potentially fairly early tonight, potentially, um, or at least later into the night, but maybe today, um, then it's a clearer path for him to win the presidency. Because if he pulls off Wisconsin and Michigan, then all he needs is one of those four states And he doesn't have to worry about Pennsylvania, which could be an absolute mess in terms of vote counting. But if President Trump keeps all of those states and he keeps Texas and and keeps a lot of those states from 2016. But if Joe Biden wins Wisconsin, and Michigan, then it's all going to fall to Pennsylvania. And that vote count may be grueling and will be controversial. And that one could last for days with all sorts of lawsuits coming out of it. Oh, boy. So you feel that the indications will come fairly on about which way this is starting to lean? Yes, I'm looking in particular at uh, Georgia, Florida, Arizona and North Carolina, especially Georgia, because that could be a surprise state. And if Joe Biden happens to win Georgia and there are indications that he's got a 50 50 chance with no which no Democrat has had for a number of years, Um, If he does that, then it tells you that there may be some sort of surge building around the country that could sort of bleed into all of these other uh, highly contested states. So, again, that's where I'm keeping my eye on. And if President Trump pulls that off, then and if he pulls off North Carolina and if Joe Biden can't win Arizona, um, then the Biden team has to start worrying about a repeat of 2016. What I find interesting as well, Leonard, because I've watched so many of these election nights, and it seems like it's always been, oh, Florida, Ohio, Florida, Ohio. But this time around, there seems to be a number of states that are critical to this. Yes. um, And look, uh, it's nice that we have more states that are critical. What's not nice is that uh, it's not a national election, really. It's only an election based on a few battleground states. So it really doesn't matter uh, what the vote is in California. We know that Joe Biden's going to win it or the vote in Alabama. We know that Donald Trump is going to win it. Those states almost don't matter. They're off the radar. They're almost not part of the national perspective when we think about elections anymore. So we really are focused on these states. But I think because um, of the controversial nature of 
uh, Donald Trump's presidency because the third parties are very few and will not accumulate the types of votes that they did in the year 2016 um, because turnout is going to be large. And of course, because of COVID, which has created so many uncertainties in so many ways about voting and mail-in balloting and early voting and whether certain votes will be, uh, mail-in votes will be invalidated. Um, it's put all of these states in play as sort of potential flips for, uh, especially for Joe Biden, but possibly even for Donald Trump in a couple of places. Um, because Biden has a number of opportunities to flip states and because the polls, which you hope they've learned their lessons from 2016, mm. suggest that any number of those states are razor thin. Yes, it certainly has expanded the field of competitive states right. out there. But I guess if we could take a positive out of this is when you see the lineups, like people's dedication to voting and making sure their voices are heard seems to me certainly quite commendable. Yes, and we could reach a record in terms of the number of people voting, uh, you know, that we haven't yeah. seen in a long, long time, up to 65%. We could have over 150 million votes cast. Now, that still means that 35% of Americans will not have voted, but we have to be encouraged that there is a lot of energy and there are a lot of people that are engaged. Where would, it would be discouraging is if all of those people who, you know, did their best to send in mail-in ballots, that even though they tried to vote, that their ballot could be invalidated because of a little technicality here and there, depending on which state it may be, whether it's a signature or forgetting to put in a photocopy of your photo ID right. um, in particular states. So, yes, I think the enthusiasm and the energy is good, um, but then there's that flip side to it. If lots of people vote, and if, as I'm expecting, Joe Biden wins a significant popular vote uh, win, I'm guessing anywhere between four and 10 million votes. Um, and if he loses the Electoral College, that will then create a great deal of reckoning about how right. our system is structured. If somebody who can win by such a decisive margin among all Americans can still lose the presidency. We will see. One of the reasons why we'll be watching. Leonard, thank you. Hey, thank you very much. That's Leonard Steinhorn, CBS News political analyst on tonight's events, which I know everybody will be following. You'll get coverage right here on uh, CKNW as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Small businesses everywhere need your help. They need your support. They need your business. And small business owners in Surrey are highlighting that right now. They are among the hardest hit by this pandemic. Joining us now to talk about that struggle to stay afloat is Elizabeth Modell, CEO of the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association. Elizabeth, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Simi. What My are pleasure. You, what are you hearing from businesses in that downtown Surrey area? Well, most of the businesses are struggling, but having said that, there are businesses that are, have been doing extremely well, particularly in the video gaming industry and, and technology, i.e. computers, etc. All right, so which are the ones that really need some help? The ones that really need the help are the small family-owned businesses, the mom-and-pop, the small retail. All of those businesses are really struggling and uh, with the protocols in place, they are happy and welcoming customers. Are the customers coming? They are, but they're very, very cautious and, and uh, not in uh, the volumes that they used to be. We were just yesterday on a call with the uh, Prime Minister and our local MP 
uh, for Surrey City Centre, and um, we had uh, Vice President of Blackwood join us, uh, which is um, uh, one of the um, one of the well the owners of uh, Central City uh, Shopping Centre, mm-hmm. and uh, he's not seeing the volumes that um, used to be there, but they are slowly coming back. So, with the protocols in place, we're urging people to shop local, to buy local, to be local. And um, and to abide by the rules and regulations that um, um, our provincial health officers and uh, local health officers, self the Fraser, have laid out for us. Now, did you learn anything else on that call from the Prime Minister about border closures or when we might see a loosening of those restrictions? Yeah, that's a great question. It was asked by one of our board members, um, and it is no time in sight. He did mention the uh, pilot project that's happening in Alberta right now. I believe it's in Calgary uh, with regard to um, a testing of people coming back internationally and uh, and also going out where it's just uh, uh, one or day or two days. And if that provides to be viable and proves to be viable, then um, they'll take that under consideration of the quarantine, which would helping the tourism aspect and the hospitality aspect a lot, um, that people don't have to do the 14-day quarantine. Right. So you think that would attract more business? Absolutely. I think that uh, uh, people would realize that, uh, particularly business people, if they if they have to do travel internationally, um, with the 14-day lockdown coming back is uh, is is really not conducive to um, an, an office environment, although much of it has been done um, via technology, but there are times, particularly in the um, uh, manufacturing industry, where they, they do have to go for quality control, right. etc. I wonder, though, like if people aren't going down to the States shopping anymore, which an awful lot of people in Surrey used to do, right, with the proximity to the border, is that not translated? Like, are they not spending that money at home now? Well, we would hope that they would spend that money at home and uh, shop local, and that's what we're encouraging by um, different programs that we as the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association have rolled out. Like what? So how do we encourage people, especially with this upcoming holiday season, to shop yeah. locally? To shop local? Well, there are all sorts of programs that are coming out. Um, uh, one of the things that we've done with our summer jobs grant students is uh, uh, doing a program of, of Click on Surrey, which activates um, uh, their social media platforms, and we're helping businesses get on, back, on board with that. The City of Surrey uh, Economic Development Department have done a store-to-door uh, to, to profile local businesses as well. And I know the other BIAs are all doing their shop local programs to, to activate those places and spaces and the small, small businesses that really need the help. So we're just encouraging local residents to shop local too. And I think if people hear that message enough, they will respond. And particularly to their favorite favorite places to go as well. Yeah, we hope so, right? Are you are you worried, Elizabeth, about how local businesses thrive? I am always worried about local businesses because um, having owned and operated several of my own in the past, um, it's always a worry because they've put their life savings into this and um, it's their heart and soul and it's part of their of who they are and what they're about. And if we can help them, help themselves, then we're all part of the progress. Well, thank you very much for your time on this, Elizabeth. Appreciate that. Most welcome.
Elizabeth Modell, CEO of the Downtown Surrey Business Improvement Association, once again encouraging people to shop local. Some of those Surrey businesses, they said, really, really need your help right now.